Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay, and happy, happy holidays. Um, it's December. It's early December, so we are in the holiday season. We are deep in the holiday season, one may even say, if you count um, the day after Thanksgiving as the time when holidays start. But I actually know a lot of people who now count like the day after Halloween as the time when holidays start. So uh, depending on your definition, we are deep in the holiday season. And look, I love the holidays. I feel like, especially in New York City, um, it's just very beautiful and festive. And the streets are decorated with like lights and trees and bows. And okay, honestly, I do not love bows. I feel like with all the fashion industry clamoring over bows in the last several months, I've grown really, really tired of them. Like I cannot look at them any longer. I don't want bows on anything anymore. And I'm really glad that I didn't end up falling for any trend of buying clothes with bows on them because yeah, I I just don't have anything with bows on it. Um, But bows have just gone too far. And I apologize if you're someone who is very into bows, like it's not you. It's just, I feel like there's an oversaturation and I need some like other type of stimulation visually. (laughs) But I really lost it the other day because I saw these candles on sale and the way that the candles were decorated, they're like these long tapered candles, like super elegant, the ones that you put on a candelabra that are really popular. And they were tied with a bow and it was like part of the style of the candles they were selling, like they were selling them with bows on them. The literal product description is taper candle with lace bow. And the bow is a satin and lace bow. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. It's also $42 for this singular candle. That's an extreme fire hazard. I'm like, okay, the candle's like melting and it drops on the bow and the bow just goes up and bursts into flames. No, thank you. I do not want my dinner table to catch fire this holiday season. So yeah, I think... The bows, they've gone too far. We need to know there's a time and place for bows. And there's lots of times and lots of places for them in the holiday season. They've been a Christmas favored decor for a while now. But again, there's a line. No fire hazards, please. <laughs> what was I saying? Um, Holiday season. Yeah, I'm interested to know if anyone has a particular thing on their wish list that they're looking to acquire this holiday season I ask because I feel like I'm always the worst person to come up with a list of items that I want for Christmas but then I'm also someone who's very particular about the objects in my home so if I don't like the object that you've gifted me uh, it really stresses me out because I feel like I can't throw it away and I feel like I can't re-gift it but I also am like so aware that it's just going to sit in my apartment unused and so that's why I try to procure a Christmas list but my only problem is like I just generally like don't know what I want or the things that I want are not really exciting or you know, like exciting for someone to give to someone over Christmas. Um, So for instance, what I'm really looking for this Christmas is a knife sharpener (laughs) or, you know, something, something that's just like useful that I know will get use in my home. But yeah, I feel like my Christmas list this year, I've mostly just been filling it with books because I could always use another book, I guess. I love books. I also love food gifts because 
they can be consumed and therefore they just don't take up space. I don't know. Is this like a weird thing for me to be so um, obsessive about the things in my space? But I feel like it's because I live in New York City and I feel like I always talk about this a lot about just not having like a lot of space. But it's really different living in a house in a suburb where you can just like shove things in closets and forget about them for years or shove things in a basement or in an attic and forget about it for years. But in an apartment, you're just really aware because there's not that much hiding space. So it's really in your vicinity. You can't forget about these things. And in a good way, it means you're actually using the items in your home. But in a bad way, it's like if you get a gift you don't like, what are you supposed to do? So yeah, on my list, knife sharpener, those tin fish bundles. Because as I've said before, I have an obsession with tin fish these days. I, I don't know. I just think it's so yummy and so easy to repair. So if I die of any kind of mercury poisoning, I die. Um, and I've just accepted that. But a lot of websites, they'll do these tinned fish subscriptions or these tinned fish bundles where they'll curate like a bundle of, I don't know, anywhere from like four to eight to 12, depending on how much money you want to shell out on it, of like different tinned fishes from different companies. And I think it's a great gift. For someone who is a foodie and also the way that tin fish companies design their packaging it has been really nice I don't know if it's always been like that or if it's just recently as of late because tin fish has become more popular but it makes for a very like pretty gift as well which you know I'm a Libra so that's important I was talking to my friend Jamie who is also a food vlogger um, her username is food jars on Instagram and she's also an immaculate chef and made my birthday cake a couple months ago which was super delicious I would definitely support her if uh, I were you and um, she made like a TikTok suggesting some gift ideas and one of them really stood out to me she was like saying every person should carry around a pack of cards and so now I have vintage cards, like a set of vintage playing cards on my um, gift wish list. But her mentality is like cards are just the perfect icebreaker if you're just, you know, feeling like the conversation's kind of lulling and if you're in like a, a small group setting, you can just like whip out some cards and it gives you an activity to do with another person with a few other people or honestly just like by yourself too like I'm a huge solitaire fan or I was when I was a kid and I think it's just like a really cool girl idea like who in this day and age whips out some cards at a party I mean if someone did that I'd be like I need to be her friend immediately and I would even force myself to listen to her explain the rules to me even though <laughs> I feel like learning the rules of a card game is so like is universally an extremely difficult experience <laughs> but I would do it because I'm like anyone who carries around cards I just know I would want to be friends with them it doesn't have to be playing cards we were talking about Monopoly Deal which is a fire card game it's basically like Monopoly but it's through cards and it's kind of hard to explain but it's a lot quicker than Monopoly like you can run a whole game in like 15 minutes or so so very friendly at a party or gathering and then also Uno, 
Okay, Uno is a personal favorite of mine, but I also think that like even though the deck itself is not as beautiful as just like a pack of playing cards, the benefit of carrying around Uno everywhere is that virtually everyone knows how to play Uno, so you don't have to like spend time explaining the game to people. You can just start playing. So yeah, now cards are on <laughs> are on my wish list. And Okay, this is not necessarily that different from a book, which is what I talked about earlier, but if you've been on the A24 merch website, like it's just their website, but there's like a merch page and they sell a lot of like merchandise that's film related, uh, obviously, but like, you know, hats, t-shirts, whatever. Don't really care about those. If you're into that, that's cool. But what I do really care about a lot personally is they have these beautiful screenplay books. I don't own any of them myself and there's not that many to choose from at the moment. Like I think there's maybe only like five or six different ones but I think what it is is like the entire screenplay but it's filled with like photos and it's packaged in a really pretty book that also doubles as a coffee table book and I think it'd be a perfect gift for someone like myself or for someone who's just really into A24 or films in general. The one thing that I'm kind of annoyed about, so I purchased the Sofia Coppola archive book and I purchased it like months ago, but it's it sold out immediately and so my book was on back order and I just received it. And I feel like the book is mostly photos and I'm someone who prefers text <laughs> in a book. Like I, I don't really love it when there's mostly photos. Um, so I think if you're trying to buy a book for a friend, um, especially if it's going to be like a coffee table book, like a very luxurious, nicely designed book, you should think about whether that friend is someone who is more into text or is more into photos. Because there are a lot of coffee table books that are very informative, but so many of them are not. And um, yeah. Speaking of art books and New York, I went to the Met Museum this morning because I was invited to their preview of the Costume Institute's new exhibit, Women Dressing Women. And it is an exhibit about women designers and they've created like a companion book, which is really pretty. My friend brought it, who I was going with. It was a little bit too photo heavy for me. <laughs> As I find a lot of like exhibition books tend to be which is like totally fine, but again, like not personally for me. Anyways, I went there this morning and it's a really cool exhibit for sure. There's lots of beautiful dresses. I would say it is more visual than like specifically like historical or theory focused because the whole point of the exhibit is that it's featuring like a bunch of women designers. So you have stuff from... Um, Chanel and Scaparelli from like the 1930s all the way up to Maria Grazia Curie. They have a look from Dior's 2020 show featured in the exhibit. So it covers the entire spectrum of the 20th century. And because of that, there's not room to explore like the contributions of every single designer specifically, but it is like a good overview and a good introduction for anyone who just wants to learn more about women designers throughout history and just to jot down names and notice the differences between different uh female designers because um there were a couple speakers 
who were talking about the exhibit and um, one of the speakers, Melissa, she said that what they really didn't want to do is try to say like all women designers prioritize this or make any kind of like generalizing monolithic statements about women designers because there are so many of them who were super artistic and were inspired by different things and so yeah I think the exhibit is a good introductory course or introductory like exhibit to someone who isn't too familiar and even for me like I would say I'm pretty familiar with a lot of 20th century designers but there were some designers who I've never even heard of before and I was like damn her legacy has been lost um and that's kind of the point of the exhibit is to bring awareness to not only the fact that there are lots of women designers um who have a legacy and who have thrived such as Muccia Prada and Vivian Westwood but there are also um lots of female designers who kind of disappeared into the ether the negative side to the exhibit, once again, I just think it wasn't very specific. And that's kind of like not the point of the exhibit was to be specific. But I think for me, I prefer exhibits that are more focused on a specific theme. Um, I'm really excited for like Sleeping Beauties, for instance, because it's more focused on the theme of like construction. Um, and then I'm also someone who is more interested in like deep dives into specific designers. And I think because there were just so many designers it's not really possible to be able to do that with one exhibit but yeah I would definitely check it out if you live in New York City um, or if you're visiting New York City between now and March I believe is when it ends like fact check me on that because I'm not sure but it's really beautiful the dresses on display are in immaculate condition and yeah it's located kind of like you have to walk through the Egypt exhibit and then make a right and then go down some stairs. I do feel like it's kind of like hard to get to. Like it's kind of hidden. Um, but, you know, the Met employs tons of people and there are many people there who are willing to guide you in the right direction. I love the Met. I think it's a great resource. Um, I don't know if this is still necessarily true. I got a press pass, so I didn't really do – I didn't like have to do the same check-in as everyone else. But I think that it's – like donation based still for New York residents and they're pretty relaxed or at least the times that I went to in the past because I haven't switched my ID to a New York ID yet I just I don't know I've been putting that off and I'll usually just like show like mail or like you know um confirmation emails of packages that were sent to me to show that I'm like living in New York City and they're totally fine with it on the other side of the fashion industry, the less academic side, but still, uh, you know, touching the influence of Anna Winter, is Balenciaga's pre-fall runway show that uh, occurred in Los Angeles recently. And it got a lot of buzz because there were lots of celebrities in attendance, also Cardi B, and I think other celebrities were walking. I didn't really watch the show. I looked at a couple of the photos. Um... I'm not someone who's like loved the pivot that Balenciaga has done in the last couple years. I feel like they've leaned on creating like viral moments over creating beautiful clothes. And I think that still stayed the case with this show. Um, I don't know, like it was clearly based on or supposed to be a mockery of celebrity culture, but it just didn't really seem funny because... I don't know, it felt like a massive inside joke because there were tons of celebrities in attendance. There were celebrities walking. Balenciaga also, I feel like, has a strong celebrity presence, like a lot of celebrities 
by Balenciaga. And as someone who's not a celebrity and who doesn't really buy Balenciaga, it just felt weird for me to see. Like I couldn't really see what the statement um, there was. And especially with the Erewhon collaboration, uh, Balenciaga and Erewhon collabed. And I think I don't know, the company's just getting kind of lost in the sauce. Like, I think previously, like, they've tried really hard to strike a sense of irony in their designs, like, kind of poke fun at establishments. I was talking to my friend about this, and uh, he was like, yeah, I mean, previously, Balenciaga back in 2017, I believe it was, they released a jacket that had a uh, Balenciaga logo that was um, stylized like the Bernie Sanders campaign logo. And it was poking fun at the idea of politicians merchandising their platforms, which is something that actually happens and is true. But Balenciaga does not actually like sell or specifically it doesn't market itself to politicians. Like that's not their target audience. And so there was clearly like a statement being made there. Whereas with this runway, it's like, oh, we're creating a lot of designs that are making fun of celebrity culture. Like their obsession with Erwan and their obsession with track suits. And it's just like a little weird because this is also their, their client base. And so I'm like, you're not really making a statement that lands when you still um, prioritize these people and you're still marketing towards these people. Okay, so those those are just my thoughts on Balenciaga, but let's go back to New York because I have been thinking a lot about third spaces or third places. Uh, I forget the term exactly, but these places that are supposed to exist like outside of your home, but still feel like a home, a home away from home. Oh, here we go. According to Miss Wikipedia, in sociology, the third place refers to the social surroundings that are separate from the two usual social environments of home and the workplace. Examples of third places include churches, cafes, bars, clubs, community centers, public libraries, gyms, bookstores, maker spaces, stoops, and parks. Very nice. Um, so I bring that up because I feel like there is a lacking of third places in New York and just in America in general. I was watching on TikTok this guy kind of breaking it down. I think he was moving to Europe because he was saying like Europe has an abundance of third places and America just doesn't or the third places that do exist in America are not well kept or have very high cost barriers to entry. So for instance, like a lot of parks in America, we have very uncomfortable park benches because the government doesn't want houseless people to sleep on these park benches and therefore they make them so that they are kind of like unsittable, un <laughs> you know, they're just not places you want to sit down because they prioritize oppressing houseless people over creating beneficial infrastructure for the community. And then in terms of like high cost barriers to entry, like there are lots of social clubs in New York specifically. Um, I have a couple friends who are members of Soho House and I've been to Soho House a few times like with them. It's a nice environment. Like it's cute. Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, there's not really much else for me to say about it because especially living in New York City, like there's tons and tons of bars and clubs or whatever that you don't have to pay membership fees for so I've never particularly felt the need to 
become a member at so house but i guess like a couple of my friends who are members they travel a lot and so it makes sense for them because there's like so houses like in la and in london or whatever and it's just like an easy way for you to have a place to work like i get it but it's baffling to me that there's like a membership fee and then also the drinks and the food cost so much it's like 20 dollars or something for a cocktail um and sure there are plenty of places that charge that for um cocktails but <laughs> you can also find tons of cocktails in the city for like 15 dollars. and then you would just think that if you're paying a membership fee already that the food and drinks would just not be as much like okay to put in perspective you know the delta sky lounge or whatever i'm not a delta sky lounge member but the few times that i've been flown out for business the client will pay for my flight and they'll usually pay business class which is very nice and so it's like complimentary with business class and i've been in those lounges and the food is free like the champagne the alcohol is free because the idea is you're paying this much or you're like i actually don't know how you become a member of delta sky lounge other than like getting an american express credit card But if that's the case, like you definitely have to pay extra for American Express, but then you get all these benefits that are complimentary that come with your membership fee. So yes, I think it's just ridiculous a little bit how there are tons of like social clubs or whatever where you have to pay a membership fee and then on top of that pay like drinks and beverage and whatever fees. And then even like not like I would say membership clubs are kind of like on the high upper crust part of third places for new yorkers but even just going to like a coffee shop a neighborhood coffee shop it's gotten so expensive to get like a latte um i moved to new york in 2019 i feel like at that time and maybe this is just like my botched memory but i feel like at that time like five dollars was like kind of standard for a latte or like for any kind of like drink um ice drink and this is with like a milk substitution too And recently, like, I've been to cafes and they're like, that's going to be $9. (laughs) Like, what? $9? And then I'll see on their little breakdown chart and it's like a dollar extra for oat milk. Or it's like even like a dollar fifty for oat milk. It's highway robbery. And sure, in the grand scheme of things, $9, that's probably like on the upper side and that's including tip, right? Um... But I would say it's still like in New York, like the low end of a latte with a milk substitution with tip is probably $6. And that's just not feasible of a third place cost, Um, especially when you compare to countries in Europe. Like when I was in Italy, I could get a cappuccino for like a dollar or $2. I get a pastry for the exact same. And... I could get wine for also like an extremely cheap price when I was in Paris. Like these are way lower barrier cost to entry. And the result is that people spend more time in third places than they would in America where it's like going out for a $7 latte is going to be considered a treat and is not going to be a regular practice for the average citizen. And obviously there are negative ramifications to the lack of affordable, accessible, beautiful beautiful i feel like we never really prioritize beauty but that's important um the lack of beautiful third places is that 
there's a lack of community and the communities that do exist are just super um class-based I I want to say like let's be real like a lot of these establishments if you're going to be paying like $200 a month for a membership you're only going to be around people who also are able to pay $200 a month and therefore probably in a similar income bracket to you or who are just really bad at managing their money but regardless it's like you are exposing yourself to only one certain group of people versus if there was an investment and a prioritization of building up community spaces that are accessible to all. We would all be interacting with like tons of different people who live completely different lifestyles, of different economic statuses, of different upbringings, different backgrounds, uh, you know, just like different and more diverse um, groups of people. And it is also really brutal because I feel like what ends up happening is if there's like a lack of a you know, nice public space, what people end up doing is investing. If if they have the money, they will invest in creating a private space that, quote, makes up for the lack of that public space. So for instance, if you don't have like a pretty park near you um, and you have the money, you're going to try to build up a nice garden for yourself, a nice private garden. Or if you don't like the community pool, you're going to build up a nice pool in your backyard or an indoor pool or whatever. And if you don't like the movie theater near you, you're just going to build up a movie theater in your house. Um, and these are all nice if, you know, for yourself, but they don't offer like a sense of community. And what you end up doing is just spending more time at home and being more isolated, which is also why I feel like a lot of people complain about a sense of isolation and alienation these days. It's because our communities are built in that specific way. And what also really sucks is I feel like the people who are able to afford to build these types of infrastructures within their own homes are also the type of people who could afford to really help fund um, or community build around like building up a public park or a public pool or a movie theater or et cetera. Like they have the capabilities of doing so. Um, But because American culture is so focused on like building up your own personal nuclear family and hoarding wealth and not caring about your community, um, we just don't get enough like rich people caring about public infrastructure. And if the government is not going to do it and if rich people are not going to do it, then like the public parks are going to look not that great. So I just want to share this. um, It's not necessarily an article. It's a substack that I am subscribed to. It's called The Trend Report. Um, It's written by Kyle Raymond Fitzpatrick. And it's like a newsletter that compiles like a bunch of like really interesting links or topics um, online. But he did write a little blurb about um, children these days. And I feel like it all kind of like ties into what I'm saying. So this also goes back to an old podcast episode old it's not that old like a a couple episodes ago I made a podcast episode about how no one's reading um these days and so he also references that conversation I'm just gonna read this out the kids can't read trend paired with how rude and bad kids are today see the viral ballet teacher calling out parents theories are emerging as to why kids are so bad today is it covid is it the government defunding schools pushing kids towards independent learning in libraries or child labor is it that gen x or millennial and gen z parents are not good I think all of these things and none of these things are the answer. My theory, which is related to parents, is something we all experience and know and deal with every day. 
shit rolls downhill. In our jobs, more work is placed on us for less money as people at the top seemingly profit off of our labor. In our free time, we watch videos and play games and don't have any time to read. We bully each other across generations for whatever reason, resulting in a ridiculous this is in, this is out cycle. We don't have time to have our own lives. We don't have time to parent. Imagine then what it means to be a kid today, to observe and learn and witness all this. Imagine then what becomes of the children who, like any living creature, are a collage of their surroundings. Why would kids be readers when the world we live in is an increasingly without readers? We may complain that we want kids to read, yet intellectualism, thinking, and higher education are increasingly being met with contempt and hate. This behavior leads to the educated fleeing from rural areas, which means teachers and nursing and accounting shortages become these rules that feel like service work but require education are undervalued and treated like shit. Given this context, is it surprising then that kids can't read? They are the actors in the play that our times are writing. We wonder how we ended up with something like skibbity toilets when, as explained years ago, YouTube is a sandbox for children, a babysitter that teaches you visual and cinematic gestures while passing time. This is why kids prefer videos that are multi-layered narrative meme compilations. We share memes for laughs, which is why they share memes for laughs. Gen Z are mean to millennials, so of course Gen A are mean to Gen Z. Monkey see, monkey do the same thing, but worse. You can trace this to many cross-cultural ways, AI at work meaning experimenting with AI schools, where students are taught by AI teachers, employee surveillance, which means kids' brains will be monitored to prevent daydreaming, but it all leads back to our behavior. The shit is rolling downhill to them. They are doing their jobs by reflecting back our culture. If we don't like what we see in these human mirrors, we need to change. So I thought this like little essay is just, you know, really encapsulates everything that I think has been happening in terms of child discourse, like generation alpha discourse. Um, yeah, I mean, like, once again, I stand by that I think parents unfairly take on a lot of the blame when people are complaining. And sure, there's a lot of issues with parenting, but I think like the reason why there's issues with parenting is because there are other systems in place that prevent or that encourage parents to parent their children in this way and bringing it back to like third places like I think when I was a kid I was always playing outside I didn't even like playing outside I was just sort of like forced to play outside because as I think I've said before I was afraid of dirt um, for a while but um, I kind of got over it by the time I was in middle school and I was still playing outside and I was having fun, I would like bike with my friends and we would go to like playgrounds and parks and stuff. And I think that's like really healthy and really important for children to have that access to nature because, oh my God, like another statement that what I hate, especially how like boomers and Gen Xers, they'll like push the problem of climate change onto millennials and Gen Z and Gen Alpha by extension. They're like, oh, the younger generations are going to fix this. And it's like, okay, um, first of all, you still are alive, so therefore you still need to be doing your part. But second of all, it's like if children are not taught to appreciate nature and appreciate like the earth, then what makes you think that they will step up and like do anything to save the environment, you know? Like, that's kind of a baseline level of comprehension you have to have before being an activist. Like, you have to care for what you're trying to defend and what you're trying to save. But if you have no connection to ever playing outside to, 
you know, touching grass, like not to be regurgitating like meme speak, but like if you literally don't touch grass, then I don't think you will care about what's happening to the environment. Um, and that might be like a really big rage, but I don't think that sounds crazy. And sure, I think why kids don't play outside as much, like, yeah, part of it has to do with parenting for sure. For instance, like, I think that a lot of parents are way more paranoid about what's going to happen to their kids if they let their kids just, like, roam around outside. And I don't know if that's necessarily, like, because of social media. I feel like it is. I feel like we're so aware of all the devastating things that could happen to really anyone living in this day and age like my boyfriend was biking a couple days ago like he was doing a long bike ride and he said that he biked past this like pool of blood in the bike lane and there wasn't like anyone there or anything like it happened earlier that morning because it rained the day before so it didn't happen the day before but he was talking to his friends who were also like biking along that bike route and they just assumed like someone was stabbed uh, you know, which is, which is not lovely. Like it's, <laughs> and sure, there's like lots of like freak accidents that happen and lots of crazy things that happen out there. But the world is actually like way safer than it was like back in the 70s when our parents or you know, if you're a millennial or, or Gen Z, like our parents were growing up and they were all like playing outside and, you know, just being hooligans unsupervised and I think it's because there was no uh there's no social media that would like highlight these kind of fearful scenarios and so they were just like allowed to do whatever they want so yeah I do think like parents the psychology of parents has changed a lot there's also a lot of like doting that parents do these days like a lot of like gentle parenting which I am anti like physical punishment I was never punished physically as a child and I don't believe you should do that. That's just what I sincerely believe. But I mean like I think a lot of gentle parents like they don't believe in teaching their children consequences and you see that a lot with the way that kids don't really have a respect for authority and I don't really think kids ever had that much respect for authority. I had a substitute teacher she was very beloved to me in elementary school and I remember on the last day of fifth grade she made an announcement that she would not be substitute teaching in our middle school that our elementary school would feed into and we were all like why why not like why won't you come to the middle school and she's like because middle schoolers are mean (laughs) and she was really right for that like middle schoolers are foul and so I think like There is a certain level of rebellion among young people, but I think it's just gotten like really bad where it's like kids, like small kids won't even listen. Like I think, you know, back in the day, a lot of middle schoolers, like 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds would act out because they felt like they were rebelling against a system of having to follow authority that they've been conditioned to believe in. But I think for a lot of small children these days, they've never been – taught to follow authority in the first place which you know I'm all for like children having boundaries I think that's like really important and I think a lot of parents are really uh prioritizing that which is good but the reality is like you need to have some sense of respect 
for other people uh, to survive or to thrive in this community. Like prioritizing your wants and your desires all the time is not the same as having personal boundaries and unfortunately I think those two things are getting conflated with a lot of children these days. So those are the parenting things but in terms of like just like infrastructural stuff and you can argue like even parenting psychology is rooted in some kind of like infrastructural system that's being pushed upon us but you know like kids these days are just like on iPads in school and there's an addiction to our phones that adults have that I don't think is the fault of any adult who's addicted to their phone. I think it's a fault of these companies and manufacturers that create addicting apps and addicting platforms. Um, But regardless, they are addicting. And when it's normalized for adults and parents to be addicted to their phones, it's a natural progression that children would also be addicted to technology. But, and as I've said before, I feel like technology is a very individual, isolating experience. Um, You know, like you're just like on your phone and you're not engaging with your surroundings. You're not noticing the people around you. You can be engaged in a conversation on your phone, but you're not engaging with the people in your physical vicinity. Like the people in your physical worlds are separate from the people in your digital world. But the less third places we have, the more, wait, is it third spaces or third places? I don't even remember. Third places, okay. (laughs) But the less third places that are available, the more you seek out just like individual forms of entertainment, which is your phones, your streaming services, your subway surfer. So yeah, all of this is to say is I think there is a large connection between um, dependence on technology and lack of community infrastructure. And also why I don't love America. I mean, I don't love America for a lot of reasons. I also do obviously love America for certain things because I live here still. But uh, every day I'm like, should I just be living in a place that actually prioritizes community because I know they're out there? Um, There's just not many areas of that in this country that I live in. If you haven't started holiday shopping yet, no worries. I'd suggest checking out Uncommon Goods. They sell original and thoughtful gifts that make it look like you planned ahead months ago. Uncommon Goods also has a search filter that highlights products that will arrive before Christmas, even with economy shipping. Uncommon Goods supports small artists and businesses and offers everything from jewelry to kitchen items to virtual classes. And with every purchase you make, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. Through their website, I've discovered artists like Colleen Huth, who is a Wisconsin-based ceramicist. She makes really cool mugs, um, but I'm looking at this one called the Enjoy the Ride mug that has bikes on it because I have a lot of bike lovers in my family. If you have any dog lovers on your list, there's also a virtual class experience called Layers of Love, Doggy Cake, and Treats. It's a 90-minute class where you can learn how to bake a canine-friendly layer cake as well as other snackable dog treats. I feel like dog lovers love any gift relating to their pets, so that's a plus. Also, it's an experience, so you definitely don't run the risk of things getting lost in the mail. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash Mina. That's uncommongoods.com slash Mina for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about today is milk because I feel like Dairy has become such a contentious 
topic. I mean, I even alluded to it by the fact that like oat milk um, is sold in some places at $1.50. Once again, abysmal. I came across this report um, published by AG Funder News and it was published in August. So it's a little like not um, super recent, but the title is U.S. Retail Sales of Oat Milk Decline in Latest Quarter After Years of Explosive Growth. And I don't want to get too ahead because I do think that plant-based milk is like still uh, very popular among younger generations. I myself am an oat milk drinker. I am also like kind of lactose intolerant as many Asians are. Um, So I try not to drink too much milk in general, not because I'm like super adverse to the taste, but because of like digestive issues, I try not to drink too much of it. But I feel like I've been kind of psyoped when it comes to coffee and feeling like I need to have oat milk in my coffee because there's a pie place that I really love and they sell coffee there, but also all their pies are made like with whole milk. Like they don't make vegan pies. And it's just like really hit me like the hypocrisy of ordering a slice of pie and then being like, can I have a cappuccino with oat milk to go with that? Um, On one hand, like, yes, I am lowering my overall intake of milk, but I think there's just something like very uncool about ordering a coffee with whole milk that has been programmed into my brain. And you know what? I'm not even alone because half of Gen Z reportedly feel ashamed to order milk in public. (laughs) Um, And milk consumption has decreased among the youth over the past 10 years with research indicating that Gen Z is consuming 550% more dairy-free milk beverages compared to previous generations. Back in 2018, um, Andy Kreza wrote for The Thrillist an article called We Need to Talk About Milk Shame, The Bane of Dairy-Loving Adults Everywhere. It's more of like an essay piece about his own personal experience as being a milk lover and being shamed for it. Um, He talks about how – actually, I'm just going to read this – Milk shame is real, friends, and it's ruining the dairy-loving experiences of so, so many people. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and ordered a tall glass of milk to go with a steak? I have, and you'd have thought I ordered a New York strip extra well done when the waiter brought it over with a side of stink eye. Have you ever, in adulthood, asked for a glass of milk to go with a slice of pizza? I have. It's actually my favorite pairing with pizza, and yet each time I've ordered it, I've been denied, to the point that I'll sometimes go to a convenience store and get a little bottle of milk to drink shame with my meal. At places bougie and lowbrow, it's always the same. My only safe haven has been diners, and even there, waitresses will usually deliver it with a, where's your kid? Now that I have a kid, she drinks soy milk. She thinks the real deal is weird too. I have a toddler who was predestined to throw milk shade. I feel like a lot of like the public shaming towards uh, milk products is one a lot of like really creepy characters in movies are shown drinking milk, like adult characters. I think there's something very nostalgic and very like relating back to childhood specifically uh, about milk drinking because Big Milk told us that we had to drink this many glasses of milk to get the right amount of nutrients. I talked about on Patreon episode I released last month about how milk during the Great Depression was like marketed as like the best food or you know best drink that you could have for your body and it was like just a powerhouse of nutrients that's how it was marketed and that's how it was kind of been marketed since the 1930s 
I was never a milk drinker. I hated the taste of milk. I never wanted to drink it. I would like sit at the table, the dinner table for like an hour after I finished my meal because my mom would be like, you can't leave until you drank your milk. And it would just take me so long because I would just be sipping it in tiny little sips because I hated the taste of milk. Okay. But yeah, in saying that, I think like every child, especially in America, was told they had to drink milk if they wanted to grow their bones or whatever. <laughs> and I think as an adult, because you no longer are growing, uh, there's this idea of like, why are you drinking milk? And as I said, in like a lot of like the media, it's been framed as like a really creepy thing. So I believe that in the movie A Clockwork Orange, the main guy who is a straight up villain, like you're not really supposed to root for him. He's like shown drinking a glass of milk. In Inglorious Bastards, which I watched for the first time recently, the uh, Nazi, like the head Nazi villain character Hans, in the early scene, sort of like depicting who he is, he's shown drinking a glass of milk. Um, and in Get Out, the white girl is also drinking a glass of milk. She's like eating her cereal deconstructed. But yeah, milk nonetheless. So there are definitely like negative villainous depictions of adults drinking milk. <laughs> Another reason why I think milk shame exists is because I feel like Dairy has been kind of the scapegoat for sustainability and ethical issues in the food industry. Like, let's be real, the food industry is really messed up. And if you haven't read um, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, I highly recommend reading it. He covers a lot of pretty grotesque practices that are happening in the food industry. But I think it's really important to know what's happening because I think we should all be aware of what we're eating and where our food comes from to the best of our ability, even if it makes you lose your appetite. Like, I think it's just important to know. Anyways, um, there's just like a lot of really messed up practices. I read an article recently about squid and the unethical fishing industry in the article, it was mainly talking about squid, but just like in general of like these Indonesian migrant workers who were stuck on these ships and they were sort of like forced to work against their will and just fish for squid all day. And they were dying of diseases because they were not given proper diets. Um, they were getting sick and being withheld healthcare. It was a really messed up situation but I recommend reading the article if you're a big seafood consumer like myself. Once again, it's extremely bleak, but it's also really important to know uh, what is happening and how your food is getting to you. So all of this is to say there's a lot of unethical practices that are happening all throughout the food industry, but I feel like Big Milk has really faced the brunt of it in part because we all have had a relationship to milk thanks to aggressive marketing, <laughs> but also because it's like relatively easy to cut milk out of your diet. And once again, what I've noticed for a lot of people is they don't commit to like the full veganism thing. They'll still like consume butter. They'll still consume yogurt. They'll still consume bread and uh, cakes that are made with milk. They just won't drink the milk in their coffee because it just... I don't know, at the end of the day, like you're not doing that much to change your overall consumption, but it feels like one small step. And it's one step that's made relatively easy by a lot of coffee shops because most, if not all coffee shops these days offer um, milk alternatives. 
And in a way, it just makes you feel like a little bit better about yourself and a little bit better about your contribution to um, environmental activism. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just projecting. Maybe this is just my experience, but I feel like it's what I can theorize as to why so many young people are aggressively anti-whole milk, but still able to consume whole milk derivatives or like consume other types of like unethical food products. Emily Sundberg actually wrote an article about whole milk mounting a triumphant comeback back in 2021. And she cites like a potential other reason. She spoke to Caroline Hess, a manager in Cheese Authority at Crown Finish Capes in Brooklyn, about how and why so many of us turned our backs on dairy in the first place. And Caroline's answer edged on spiritual fulfillment. She said, there's this quest for absolution in the foods we eat. I think consumers were fed this lie by what I call the goop industrial complex that if you cut dairy from your diet, you will have more energy, clearer skin, and you will never ever fart ever again. But the case against dairy ignores many of the complexities of our food system and I think people are starting to realize that. So the idea is like, with more and more people recognizing that like choosing plant-based milk is not really absolving them from the faults of the food industry and it's not actually granting them these like magical promises that perhaps like veganism has championed that uh, they're reverting back to whole milk just as like a I give up kind of stance. Emily concludes her article with another quote from Hess who says, Sometimes all people need to be convinced that dairy is fine and even good is that one friend who made the switch to announce that, after they did, nothing terrible happened to them. And once people try it themselves, they realize how hungry they've been this entire time. I do wonder because I think that Emily's article was tackling like a specific niche of perhaps European summer girlies who were bringing back big dairy but I haven't seen that be reflected like on a wide scale basis. And I don't know if there will actually be like a turn towards dairy again. I do know <laughs> that Big Dairy is trying to stage its own comeback. Hence that like really weird Aubrey Plaza got milk ad. I don't know if you all remember that. But it was like a parody video where she's like putting down wood milk which is not like a milk that actually exists but it's like a satire of like oat milk and almond milk and other kinds of like nut milk but um she was like wood milk is blah 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 like who would drink wood milk or whatever and it's an ad for whole milk so they're definitely trying to bring over gen z i just don't necessarily know whether that will be an actual change that we see in the coming years I don't know I think a lot of it will have to do with like influencers because I feel like part of the reason why alternative milk is really popular among millennials and zoomers in the first place is because of influencers um I mean off the top of my head I can think of like Alex Earl and before her Emma Chamberlain who made a lot of content promoting almond milk just like out of the goodness of their own taste like not like sponsored by almond milk but because they genuinely like drink almond milk and I think this content kind of normalized almond milk among younger generations and also made it sort of like aspirational for their fans and I don't want to say like it all pins down to influencers because I know some people are going to be like you're giving these girls too much credit there was already a movement happening but I feel like they definitely um 
well, I would say Emma Chamberlain specifically was definitely like a pioneer um, for a lot of trends that were happening already. She really just like pushed them further. And I know that Emma Chamberlain is a kind of a contentious figure right now and some people might not like what I said because it comes across as worshipping her in, or giving her way too much credit. Believe it or not, I'm not like an Emma Chamberlain stan or hater. She's younger than me and I've just never really been interested in whatever she's doing. Like I don't I don't not support her. I just like, you know, I it's not my I'm not the target audience, okay? Um, and I think it is interesting that she's been able to like leverage herself into being a high fashion girly and I think that's respectable but okay also just like another little quick thing I was aware of like the discourse about whether or not she should go to college which I think is just really strange discourse to be having about someone even if it's someone who's like making content that you consume it just felt like really condescending for people to be saying that um, and this is coming from someone who did go to college and who does not regret going to college but I just think it's like a really weird thing to say about someone because in the same breath as we're saying this person should go to college it's like what about all the people who can't afford to go to college or the people who didn't feel like college was the right learning environments for them because college does have a very standardized type of learning environment that is not suitable for everyone and so if you are saying that someone needs to go to college, you are saying like this is the only legitimate pathway for you to be able to get an education and it inadvertently puts down people who have chosen or who have not been able to go to college. So that was like my whole thing. Um, I haven't listened to her podcast, so I don't know what she quote unquote needs, <laughs> but I just had an issue with the framing of that conversation and having college be like the be-all end-all answer anyways it seems like big dairy is kind of catching on to the influencer uh influence <laughs> did that sound like a stupid sentence the influencer influence but they're funding this organization called milk pep which is short for the milk processor education program which is trying to really draw in gen z audiences and They've been like launching campaigns with influencers like Charlie D'Amelio, who is a known dairy milk drinker. But I don't know if that's going to be enough to sway people to switch over. And I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about the influencer landscape. And I feel like Emma Chamberlain was very special in the sense that she blew up at the right time and the influencer landscape wasn't as oversaturated as it is now and I also think that the way that YouTube builds an audience is very different from the way that TikTok builds its audience because I find that a lot of the times on TikTok you're not like necessarily following a specific influencer in a parasocial way. I'm sure that's not the case for everyone but in my personal experience and noticing other people and their behaviors online it's like we care about TikTok for the video content less for the creator and that's also patterned by the way that TikTok operates like you're on your for you page more than you're on your following page at least I am so half the time I don't even see what people I'm actually following are posting I'm mostly seeing what the algorithm is pushing to me which nine times out of ten are cat videos <laughs> so 
yeah, I think the way that we interact on TikTok is so different from YouTube and YouTube just like is able to foster like a more parasocial relationship because of length, um, because people are more likely to check their subscription boxes. I just think there's more of a cult of personality that can be fostered through YouTube. And I think that's also evident by the fact that like a lot of TikTok people that are big, I feel like they've kind of fallen off. Like their influence is kind of like tapered off in a way that I haven't seen with figures like Emma Chamberlain that blossomed on YouTube. And I'm not saying that everyone on YouTube is still like as relevant as they were in their peak, but I think like there's more longevity to a period of relevance on YouTube than on TikTok because TikTok is like pretty new. Like a lot of the people who blew up blew up in like 2019 and they've already kind of like fallen off and it's only been a couple years. Like I actually cannot name any TikTokers who I think are cruising at the same height of popularity and relevance as they did when they first started like in their first few years and I think that's really wild considering um, their careers have only been four years so far and I'm not saying that they're not making a lot of money and that they're not getting like lots of opportunities I just think that on a purely parasocial level it's a lot different than what YouTube has been doing for the past 15 years and also I think Again, like the influencer landscape has just changed so much. It's really built out as an industry. Like when I was watching YouTube, there were only so many content creators that people watched. Um, Like I'm trying to think. I was never like a huge, huge, huge YouTube person back in the early days, but I did watch Charlie is So Cool like for a couple years. I feel like... (laughs) I feel like he was the only one. Why? Why did I choose him? I don't know what he's doing now, but I hope he's doing well. Editor's note, I recently learned post-recording this episode that Charlie is so cool like is still doing well, making content, and she came out as trans and now her pronouns are she, her. So um, I'm really happy for her and fuck TERFs. I mostly use YouTube to watch AMVs. <laughs> so uh, if you don't know what that stands for, it's anime music videos. And you know what? I'm not ashamed of it. So you can't weaponize that information against me. <laughs> but go- just going back to the idea of like there being a monoculture back in the early days of the internet and now there's like not really a monoculture anymore. There's just too many influencers that I feel like no influencer really has like a chokehold on a majority audience. I think Alex Earl was probably like the anomaly in the last year, but yeah, I mean, even now I like don't hear much about her and it's only been a year. Maybe my algorithm has just like fully done a 180 on me and they're like cats only, like we get it. Like you don't want to see any people anymore. You just want cats and we will make that magic for you. And therefore I'm not programmed to think like this is the reality for everyone. So I would actually be really interested if you want to write in like a response about influencer culture and how you feel it's changed over the past couple years and if you think I'm on to something or if you think like I'm like completely bananas and your experience is totally different and everyone is obsessed with like a particular influencer in your social circle. Okay, thank you all so much for listening today. If you like this podcast, if you want to support it, I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash highbrowbymina. And I also have an Instagram page called highbrow.pod. I will be skipping the next episode slot because it's 
the holidays and I'm taking some time off. I'm taking a break, but I will come back to you after celebrations. As usual, this episode was edited by Sophie Carter, music by Olivia Martinez, and cover art by Lindsay Mintz. See ya! Thank you.